And there came a day. A day unlike... Wait. No, that's been done. Hmm. Who knows what evil lurks in... No, that is that other thing. What has yellow skin and rights? Ah, forget it. You're listening to Panelology. Excelsior, oh, damn it. Welcome to episode 245 of Panelology. I'm Alex. And I am Brian. How you doing this week? Uh, okay. Uh, just, you know, it's a pretty normal week, I suppose. A week much like any other. Yeah, too much work. That's about yeah. it. Like many people, I have hit my one-year anniversary of quarantine this week. Yep. That said, I also finally beat the Spider-Man game from the PS4. <laughs> And have moved on oh, from so Miles now, Morales. I was going to say, so now you're ready for Miles Morales, huh? I have already begun it. It is fantastic. Both games. I mean, the yeah. the Spider-Man game made me cry. Yes, um, the, first, the first one is amazing. Yeah, yeah. I, that one I have played. And Miles is, like, so clever in its design and using elements from that game and callbacks to that game, but remixing them in new ways and, like, changing the mix as Miles gets more in his skin. It's such a great game. But we also have a chock-full episode this week. Uh, Later in the episode, Jin and I sat down with Pat Shand uh, to talk about the upcoming Destiny New York from Black Mask. Uh, But first, let's talk about some new and upcoming books. Yeah. We have another advance review this week, The Mini Deaths of Lila Star, number one. This is written by Ram V, with art by Felipe Andrade, color assists by Ines Amaro, and letters by Andworld Design. I thought this was absolutely fantastic. What did you think, Brian? I, I, I also thought that. I, and also thought it was surprisingly humorous more humorous than i thought it was going to be yes this is a book about death who has gotten fired because humans are uh set up to invent immortality invent discover there's probably a better word than invent for for becoming immortal and that makes her redundant so she is given notice and uh, the the opportunity to live out life as a mortal and experience all the joy that can come with it. She hates this idea and decides she is going to conspire to kill the kid who will grow up to become the inventor of immortality, the discoverer of immortality. Creator, whatever, yeah, yes. whatever that is, yes. <laughs> I love when she goes up to talk to the, the, the main boss guy and he's like, so uh, how long have you been with this? Feels like an eternity, doesn't it? Um, yeah, that's because it's it's actually been an eternity. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the sense of humor in this book is amazing. Yeah, and like the art style, I think really enforces that. Agreed. It is one I think brighter in co- in its color palette than you would expect a book about death to be. Um, it is, but at the same. 
this is this is going to sound weird. It is, but at the same time, also dark for those colors that are chosen. Yeah, it's 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 colorful but muted. Maybe is yeah. The way to... I, it, that's yeah. That's a, that's a good yeah. way. To, like like the, there's orange in it, but it's always like a burnt, like a dark. Yeah, you know, and it's used as backdrops. It, it's just I don't know how to how to. But yeah, um, and the character designs the the god figure who we see uh like i love the three-faced design yes uh and the ways that this is pulling from myth as an influence yep well Uh, and it's a mythology that i am not as familiar with same like i i i recognize some names and some elements but i i am not well versed in it at all correct uh just enough to know it's happening uh-huh. Um, the first issue of this, if you are listening to this episode on the day it comes out on March 15th, uh, today is the final order cutoff for comic shops. So if you definitely want to read it, and I cannot recommend it enough, I thought this first issue was absolutely terrific. And uh, we haven't really talked about anything that's not in the solicitation text. But this sets up what what this book will look like going forward in ways that I also thought were fun and surprising. Yeah, um, and there's definitely definitely a a little. I don't even know that I would call it a full twist. There's an unexpected status yeah. change at the end. Yeah. Um, also, we haven't talked about Mun Mun, who is a character who shows up <laughs> and is amazing. And I don't want to say anything else about Mun Mun. Um, because we don't want to spoil anything in this book before it's yeah. out. But uh, shout out to Mun Mun. Yeah, Mun Mun is great. Uh, so yeah, if you definitely want a copy of this, let your comic shop know today as you're hearing it. Or if it's not the day this episode drops, try to get them to hold a copy for you anyway. Because um, it's it's fantastic. I can I can already tell you we're going to be talking about it going forward. Panelology's good, good book. Seal of approval. Yes. Moving on, another advanced review. This one is for Savage Number 2 from Valiant, which comes out this week, uh, as you are listening. Uh, This is written by Max Bemis, art is by Nathan Stockman, colors are by Triana Farrell, and letters are by Hassan Atzman Elhow. We talked a little bit about the first issue. This one, I think, shows us more about what this book is going to be. And that is Savage doing his best to one get away from modern society which is absolutely bullshit and also maybe maybe take down a group of evil like b-list scientists who really just invent things that aren't necessary um or that would embarrass the governments they've invented them for to have to use uh like just absolute goofball lunatic who choose the scenery and is a great villain in that way uh this issue also gives us our introduction to his lab assistant who is the best character in this book uh and perhaps uh will do more to actually shut him down than than savage will time will tell uh there are also some really great fight sequences that i wanted to shout out the in in the art we get some really really fluid and dynamic uh fight choreography uh that looks fantastic so uh definitely dug it like i said that is out this coming wednesday the 17th okay on to 
DC and books that are already out. First up, the first of this week's Infinite Frontier books, Batman Urban Legends number one. There are four stories in this one. We are going to move through them swiftly. First up is Red Hood and Batman in Cheer, part one of six. This is written by Chips Darsky, with art by Eddie Barrows, Eber Ferreira, and Marcus Toe, colors by Adriano Lucas, and letters by Becca Carey. I did not know that I needed Red Hood to become a father figure. Right. But I needed that, and Chip knew that. And I appreciate Chip for knowing that. And yet, Chip does one of the most chip things with it that just wow <laughs> i mean and, and it's 100 percent in the red hood character wheelhouse yeah like yeah there was i even had this moment in like the first couple of pages of this story where i'm reading and i'm like okay this is definitely red hood and i'm i'm pretty middle of the road on red hood it's all yeah, about how same, he's used same. i'm like let me have that chip twist that is what i'm ready for and then we get the chip twist, and it's like, yes, okay, Red Hood with a with a kid. Red Hood with a kid is fantastic. Like Red Hood being better than Red Hood should be, right? Yeah, and of yeah. course you get the you get the working through trauma of Red Hood uh-huh. trying to be better than his parents and better than Batman at having yes a a protege. Well, I, I it. it very much chip places him as a actually literally nobody understands this what this kid is the situation he's in as well as he does yeah yeah it's it's so good like even the flashbacks to him him being a kid and like breaking into batman's gun vault and batman having a gun vault and like i need to know how how they work i need to be able to do forensics on them i may hate them but i have to understand them is so Batman, but also like so much more complicated than you normally get with Batman and guns. Agreed. I I did love. There's a there's a point where he's trying to you know talk the boy into being brave that he needs to be this that and the other, and he's like, "Can I have a superhero name? Yeah. What do, What do you want your superhero name to be? Well, what's your name? Red Hood. Then I want to be Blue Hood because <laughs> because I, I like blue. Yeah. <laughs> It's like, it was like the most kid thing, and like, it was just perfect. I loved it. So great. And the art in this is oh, yeah, yeah, just yeah. pitch perfect for the story here. Agreed. I loved Oracle's use in this, too. Oracle was great. Yeah. Like, especially yeah. setting her up being between Jason and Bruce. Yep. And like, knowing that she has to choose what she reveals to each of them carefully. But also just that moment of here, wear my mask. If if something happens, if you need help, just say Oracle, help me. Yes. And like I knowing knowing she will respond. Yep. That's great. That's great. Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy in New Roots. This is written by Stephanie Phillips. Art is by Laura Braga. Colors by Yvonne Placencia. And letters by Darren Bennett. Uh, this is... This is, I think, doing something necessary and doing that necessary yeah. thing very well. Uh, 100%. This is all a preparation story. Yeah. yeah. We did not talk much about the Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy series that started in 2019 and finished last year because it kind of got lost in the shuffle of 
of public of of distribution delays for comics. Yep. Um, we both got behind on it. I don't think we finished it to talk about it on the show, but it sort of set up a falling out between Harley and Ivy. Yes. Uh, we've seen already Ivy show up in Catwoman in a way. Uh, and we know that Ivy's going to figure into the upcoming Catwoman plot. We know Harley's going to be in Gotham, too. And all this, at some point, will have to hook up. This this story does the work of, like, showing Harley at the point where she knows she can't do anything about this right now. And just sort of has to come to terms with and accept, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Yeah. And I th- I think it's part of Harley's self-realization about, like... If she really does want to be a different, better person, you know, acceptance of this and the situation that she's in with it right now is part of that. Yeah. yeah. And it doesn't, it doesn't to me, like, sever the importance of Ivy to Harley. Oh, no. It, it just says, okay, I ex- like you said, I accept that this is what it is, and if I'm going to do anything about it, it's going to have to be a better me in the future. Right. Super well done. Agreed. The Outsiders in The Caretaker, part one of three. This is written by Brandon Thomas, with art by Max Dunbar, colors by Luis Guerrero, and letters by Steve Wands. Uh, I have been very excited for more Outsiders after the Future State stuff, especially knowing that magic gets pulled into, like, dealing with magic and, you know, otherworldly stuff gets pulled into what the Outsiders are dealing with. I can't attest to totally knowing what's going on here. And I think that's by design. But the pieces we get, the things we see are so engaging and interesting. We get Black Lightning and Metamorpho with Black Lightning imprisoned. Uh, and Metamorpho, like, not in full control of, of his powers, not sure what's going on, not having full memories of how they got there. Uh, and kind of the way they turn that in media res amnesia trope uh, into something really cool on the last page of this story yeah. is really smart storytelling. Yeah, yeah, we are we are thrown one hundred percent into the action, which then presents us with you know questions about that you know the how did we get here? Yeah, and does not answer any of those in this. No, this. this particular installment but it manages to set stakes really well despite not answering questions which is a tricky needle it is well done Uh, and then the last story here is grifter in the long con part one of five this is written by matthew rosenberg with art by ryan benjamin colors by antonio fabella and letters by saida timofante what did you think of this brian uh yeah I, i very much i Here's the thing. Grifter is in some way similar to Red Hood for me in that there are times that I like his character more than others. Yeah. Um, lately, I think he's been well used. And I think this is another example of that. I agree. I, I've said yeah. before, I have an inexplicable fondness for Grifter. I haven't read many Grifter comics. I can't claim the ones that I have have been great always. But he's a character I have this weird fondness for, and when he's used well, like I think he's really fun. Matthew Rosenberg gets how to write this character in kind of this, I think I've used the phrase dirtbag Hawkeye. 
yeah uh to describe him before but that's kind of the space where he lives in this and it just works it it really does um the there there's about three or four issues of kind of backstory in the in the beginning of this mm-hmm. and it sets up a motivation for something that that come we come across later at the end of this and like it makes me super curious like potentially is a huge status changer for one particular character in the DC universe yeah. if it's true how how caught up on detective comics are you did you Not stick at all. with okay nope cuz the character who we see a couple of times including on the last page in this mm-hmm. i know was a a major character in detective comics uh in the last Re- year okay recently okay yeah uh but i i did not read those issues i had i had stepped I away from that book either. at that point we talked about being excited for dc leaning to this anthology format mm-hmm. and not just doing eight page stories right giving us some an actual big chunky like this is a square bound issue yep with four stories in it each of them feels substantial and yeah, I would say each of them are about half a book size. Yeah, like they're yeah. all about 12 pages. Yeah. Um, and I think it's a great format to tell stories like these. Yeah, I agree. On to the Joker number one, a book I cannot believe that I love as much as I do. Yeah, I was going to say, as I was reading this, I was like, I know Joker is like a character that Alex is just, I guess, kind of Sick tired. of? Yeah, yeah, like you're you're just like too much, just kind of done. I mean, right? I think there's a place for Joker, and I think there Absolutely. are writers who use Joker well. I think Tynan is actually one of the best I've read at finding interesting ways to use the Joker. But <laughs> the Edge Lord space that he exists in in contemporary yeah. popular culture, yeah, is just something I have not even patience for. Like, right. That colors so much of, I'm sure like many people, so much of my perception of yeah. the character at this point. And, and I, I think specifically in that space, he is overused personally. Yeah. But yeah, anyway. Uh, but this is not that case at no. all. So our main story here about, air quotes about the Joker, is written by James Tynan IV, with art by Guillaume March, colors by Arif Prianto, and letters by Tom Napolitano. This is about the Joker in the way that Jaws is about the shark. Yeah, yeah, that's very fair, yes. Um, this is all told by Jim Gordon. It starts with him remembering when he left Chicago, an old cop in a bar asking him if he had his, like, his white whale yet, basically, if he had his true Boogie evil man. who he sees at night. His boogeyman, that's the word. Yep. And at the time, at that point in his life, Gordon writes him off. Now, like, he sees the Joker when he closes his eyes. Yep. And he is kind of out of place in the current status quo in Gotham. He's getting ready to retire, but doesn't have the savings to do so. And then he gets an offer from a uh, mysterious woman and a very large, burly, tall uh uh intimidating maybe baneful man um this is against the backdrop of a day which we talked about with with infinite frontier and batman i i do love gordon's take on it though 
Yeah. Where he talks about, he was like, so the biggest gas attack that has killed more people in Gotham than has ever existed. What do you call that? In Gotham, you call it a day. Yeah. A day. <laughs> a day, much like any other. Yeah. It's like, oh my God. Yeah. Perfect. Um, and they make him an offer basically to make him filthy rich if he will hunt down and kill the Joker because he's the most, most qualified person to do it. Uh, I love the moment where he's like, well, there may be one other. Yeah, but we don't want to involve capes. And also, do you really think he would do it? Right. And and by the way, Gordon hasn't accepted either. He hasn't, but like... Yeah. and like It's they a stress, significant yeah. temptation to him. Oh, yeah. But, well, like, she talks about it, and he... There's parts where he reminisces about it, about, you know, the fact of what he did to Barbara, and, you know, literally instigated the things that led to his son's death yeah yeah uh it plays like a, a pulpy noir book that that feels like it's gonna lean into horror and like we know tynan writes horror so well yep uh the art in it is a great fit uh Guillaume march is a super talented artist the colors and lettering all like reinforce that sort of of pulpy horror vibe uh then we have punchline chapter one yep. written by sam johns and james tynan the fourth art by Mirka andolfo colors by romulo fayardo jr and letters by ariana mar uh this is a great creative team too and i am here for any book that gives me more harper row yeah more bluebird yep uh, yeah, this picks up directly out of the punchline one shot. Yeah, and uh, yeah, like we both really enjoyed that, and I'm all down for more of it. Yeah. Oh, I gotta say, there was there was one, there's one shot where she has a confrontation in prison. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And uh, she basically is standing up to the current kind of gang boss that's in prison and she ends up she's like oh why do they call me punchline and she like just beats the ever level (laughs) stew out of her and so she's got this like these bloody knuckles this blood all over her hand and she just like absentmindedly wipes her face and it leaves that red nose that she has when she's dressed up like punchline i was Uh like oh my god that's brilliant yeah i mean I have sung Mirka Andolfo's praises so many times and Romulo Fayardo has colored so so many yeah. books whose art i've loved um stuff like that is 100 percent why yep um yeah love this yeah if you are thinking about sleeping on the joker but invested on what's been going on in batman grab it anyway and, and do not be frightened away that it is a titled joker book yeah moving on to superman number 29 uh, the main feature here is The Golden Age, Part 1. This is written by Philip Kennedy Johnson. Pencils are by Phil Hester. Inks by Eric Gapster. Colors by Hi-Fi. And letters by Dave Sharp. Uh, this is something we've been talking about for, for a while now, because we've known since January what this first story would be about, and this is something that has been explored, at least thematically, in Future State. The idea that Someday, Superman won't be here, and Jonathan will be Superman. This is very much tackling that from the perspective of a son's anxiety that he will lose his father. Uh, The issue frames it around 
that moment in childhood where you have to accept that your parents are no longer infallible, invincible, you know, able to solve every problem you'll have. Uh, and it wraps that in. John has been to the future and has had access to the history of that future, which includes what is coming up for him and for Superman. And yeah. he knows that Clark dies at some point and he knows the causes and he knows that that time is coming. Yep. So this is, this is exploring all of those ideas uh, against the backdrop of the two of them kind of teaming up to fight these green monsters that come through a rift in space, which Amanda Waller is letting happen because Star Labs scientists realize that it affects Superman, although not John, and weakens him, and she wants to know how to manipulate that. So we get some scheming Amanda Waller in the background here, too, which I always enjoy and appreciate. Uh, okay, that makes me wonder if that ties into what's going on with Suicide Squad, a certain someone. Yeah, yeah. I, I had that same thought. Yeah. Because, well, there are, to our knowledge, two characters in existence who are half Kryptonian, half human. Mm-hmm. And he would be the other. I want to mention the art here, too, because it has some real, like, Bruce Tim, Paul Dini, Justice League vibes. Oh, okay. It's not trying to ape that, but it's got that same kind of strong figure, bright color, almost cartoon aesthetic in a way that, like, really was welcoming and inviting and feels timeless to me. Uh absolutely dug that thought that was a really smart choice for this story i also want to note that this is continued in action comics the action comics issue for this month which i think is 1029 will be part two of the golden age uh and i think that that if i recall correctly from solicitations after that the two books sort of are doing their own parallel things but this month they share this story. The backup in this is Tales of Metropolis Bibbo, written by Sean Lewis, with art by Sammy Bosry, colors by Ulysses Areola, and letters by Dave Sharp. Uh, Jimmy has decided that with so much going on in Metropolis, and with Superman having so much on his plate, that it is time to start featuring... Like the 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 sort of bedrock voices of of Metropolis and giving them a place to like tell their stories, share their perspectives. In other words, this is a book about Bibbo as an influencer and evil aliens trying to take advantage of everything Bibbo and Jimmy are doing. Uh, I believe these these one shots also jump or these backups also jump across Superman in action. Uh, I know they do at least for this month. And they definitely feel like they're telling kind of a slow burn story that will creep into what's going on with Clark and John over time. Last one for DC and Infinite Frontier is Wonder Woman number 770. This is Afterworlds Part 1 in the main story, written by Michael W. Conrad and Becky Cloonan, art by Travis Moore, colors by Tamara Bonvillain, and letters by Pat Brousseau. This is exactly. Exactly what you always expect from a Diana book. You know, her in Valhalla fighting alongside Siegfried and Thor. Right. Yeah. Perfectly normal day. And uh, trying to figure out if she needs to save Yggdrasil, right? Yeah. Yeah. Ratatosk certainly thinks so. Right. 
this reminded me a little <laughs> bit of uh, the Aquaman story where he gets taken by to the through the ocean to like the other place where he forgot his memories for a while. The uh, the beginning of Kelly Sudakonik's run. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Uh, it, there's a little bit of that vibe in that, you know, they're kind of removed and isolated and they're not sure what's going on either. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. We, we kind of get, Diana does not remember, uh, really her life on earth. Whenever she dies and comes back, whenever maybe she sleeps, uh, she sees this like, shadowed figure in a white void warning her against dying too many times against staying too long uh do you have any thoughts as to who that is not a single one I, you know what i like i racked my brain for it i'm real I, like the only thing i can think of is somebody like maybe either aries or zeus yeah or or i mean knowing my luck it'll be steve trevor oh god no please uh <laughs> um i think the like there are so many characters, I don't think there are any hints to who it is, but there are so many characters it could be, depending on where they go with this story. Right. That, kind of regardless, it could work. I mean, she's trapped in the god sphere. Right. It, it or the sphere of the gods, whatever you want to call it. Like, it could be Orion, it could be Booster yep. Gold, it could be... I don't think it's Booster. I don't think it's Booster, but like he he's got the time travel thing and can get to the the House of Heroes and conceivably, you know, it, there are all kinds of weird answers that you could make work depending yeah. on what you wanted to do. That like I'm kind of just here for the ride on who it is. That's fair. This is, I mean, I feel like with Infinite Frontier and Future State, DC is really pushing art teams that are strong fits for the stories they're telling and the kind yep. of work they're doing. And I, I feel like they're letting go a little bit of the, the, the sort of house style that we saw with, certainly with the new 52. Mm -hmm. um, and that they've kind of flirted with letting go of for certain titles before. Uh, but this is another book like, like the others we've talked about so far where the art style really fits what's going on really, really well. Yeah, and I, I I think especially like in the the, the backup story we're about to talk about. Oh yeah, I think they're not afraid to let that art style be very even for their big temple characters to be very different, or the Superman art style that you talked about in. Superman, yeah, right. Yeah, and I think that's very cool. Well, let's let's talk about the backup. This is Young Diana in Birthday Blues. Written by Jordi Belair, art by Paulina Ganeshout, who I love and am so happy to see on interiors mm. here. Colors by Kindle Good and letters by Becca Carey. This is Diana as a kid, like just so sure of herself. While everyone, it's it reminded me a little bit of like in in Beauty and the Beast, the song Bell, where like she's so in her own world and going through and feels ownership of it, and everyone's like, "Oh, look at her! She's just kind of traipsing through this place and yep. causing, in this case, causing chaos." And how dare she? How dare she? Maybe hurt my vegetables. These are my pride and joy. My cabbages, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I, this uh, and the the art style in this, and just the way this story is told, uh, like one hundred percent, this could have been a boombox book. Yeah, sorry, yeah, like uh, that. That's hot. That's praise from me right now. By the way, in case yeah. you don't know that. <laughs> um, 
because like like three of my favorite books right now are boombox books so yeah yeah like i think i mean i think boombox has a pretty strong history of actually being really really well curated yes yeah uh but yeah i i am 100 percent behind this i love the art style for it i love the i love the colors i love the the bright almost cartoony colors uh, and i like that we're spending time with not just diana on themiscara but diana as an actual child yep not not old enough to fight and compete and do the i'm leaving themiscara thing right young enough that she's she's just finishing exploring themiscara fully right and starting to want more yeah like like it really is that 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 preteen kind of yeah and uh, yeah, I think that's that's not something we have seen a lot with her. No, definitely not. All right, Brian. Yeah. Tell me about Carmen Number One, which is written and drawn by Guillaume March, with colors by Tony Lopez and letters by Cormatic Limited. Yeah, this is a uh, this is a new image book uh, about uh, essentially an angel of death who. Uh, comes to uh shepherd a newly deceased person and like literally there's like four or five pages of kind of setup before you know we we get to her sort of relationship melodrama right uh and then literally the rest of this is just her Finding the right way to introduce this person to the idea that they're not in the same place they were. Yeah. The thing I really liked about this, uh, other than just gorgeous art, yes, is so much of this issue is about Carmen, the, the em- embodiment of death here, mm-hmm. just kind of like selling being dead not right. saying oh hey you're dead uh, welcome to the afterlife everything's great here's 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 your brochure of your benefits right yeah yeah <laughs> um but just as a, i'm not gonna say you're dead i'm gonna show you all the benefits of your current state and then we'll come to terms with your being dead right uh which i'm actively hiding from you but it's like yeah people can fly now that they're not encumbered by physics so long as they can wrap their heads around it right and that leads to this character who is recently to being like, oh yeah, I have this dream of flying here. I can do, I can swim through the air like this. It was a recurring right. I dream. I can't fly, but I, I figured out I can swim through the air in this dream. And she's like, yeah. oh, very cool. Yeah, do that. Uh, those moments to me were were super fun. Like, were the, the crux of what what I think makes this book fun. Yeah, and I, I like the idea of, like, for instance, we... Uh, I don't. I don't think it's too much to tell her. By the way, there. Uh, I will say there's a trigger warning in that, that there is a suicide in this. Yes. So be aware of that. Um. So I, I like the idea that in order to make this transition for her, she is able to actively alter the way things appear. Mm-hmm. Like she appeared to be opening the door and coming through it, right? Yeah. But she was like, "Yeah, no, I didn't. I just came through." Um, or like the, the, the person that is now gone doesn't see the body or, and the scene in the bathroom that is really there. 
Yeah. Yeah. I really thought that was because she's like, you're not prepared to see that and, and deal with that right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But then, like, as they're leaving, we get to see that scene. And, yeah. I, like, it's just very cleverly done, I guess is the best way to say it. Yeah, okay. I can't believe we're actually talking about this next book. But it exists. <laughs> it has come out. And we have read, read it. it. <laughs> Children of the Atom, number one, is a real comic that exists in the world, written by Vita Ayala, with art by Bernard Chang, colors by Marcelo Maiolo, letters by Travis Lanham, and design by Tom Muller. I accidentally had the twist in this spoiled for me by the internet before I read it. I did not, but I figured it out well before they showed revealed it in the book. I felt like I would have to. I yeah. felt like there were two or three kind of there are key moments that really tip the hand. Yep. Uh, we are introduced to this new squad of of characters whose teenage characters whose whose code names are all homages to different X Men. We have Cherub. We have Marvel Cyclops guy. Lass. Yep. Cyclops Lass. We have Marvel Guy. Gimmick. Uh, Day- Gimmick and Daycrawler. <laughs> Some of them are much more obvious than others. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The gimmick is the gambit. And I love, let me just say, favorite character in this is yeah. Gimmick. Probably, yeah. Gimmick yeah. makes all their costumes. <laughs> gimmick is just an actual fucking double. Well, and I figure she's got to be doing their lighting design too. You know? Oh yeah. <laughs> well, I'm like right down to she's the gambit analog. Yeah. And when we see her fighting, she's throwing like pins, like pins you would use to mark in in a uh a garment that you're working on with the big big beaded head and the uh-huh. long shaft. Uh, there are so many different kind of clothing related pins. I can't believe I had to actually describe that. Uh, but she, she throws pins like trading cards. And then later we learn, oh yeah, she, she sews the costumes. It's like, oh, oh, that's why she uses those. Cause yes. she's got them and they're cheap. Perfect. Yep. Um, I like all these kids. I love that, that they, the, the, the X-Men, Krakoa, I should say, Krakoa sends a welcoming party to like remind them that they have invitations all mutants have been invited to krakoa yep so why not come and it's pixie and magma maggot and magma Uh um which like that's one hell of a welcoming party right there (laughs) and then you get like the ogx with her like do we think they did a good enough job? Should we try to get them here ourselves? We can't track these kids on Cerebro, and I'm concerned. Right. Well, they do have a telepath with them, so maybe he's masking their yeah. presence. Uh, I think we should call spoilers now. Yeah, definitely. Um, Because I, 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 I definitely enjoyed this book having the spoiler, but I think if you can go into it without, all the better. Why, uh, why, Brian... Did they not accept the invitation, and why can the X-Men not track them? Uh, that's because they're not mutants. <laughs> <laughs> Simple. Hey, sometimes the most obvious answer is the correct one. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're not mutants, so Cerebro uh, so, doesn't track them, and Krakoa doesn't let them in. So we've seen in X-Books, in the, the Hickman era now, 
lots of examples of people worshipping, people just treating mutants as pop stars, people like really embracing mutants as influencers, however you want to want to look at it. We've seen different iterations yes. of that. But now we have a non-mutant team inspired by mutants. Yes. And and uh, to be clear, I like I don't get the impression that they like worship them. They're they're definitely fans of them. No. And I think like each of those but, is yeah. is a different flavor we've seen and sure. I think this is the first time we've seen emulation. Yeah. Correct. Um, so yeah, we're not sure if their powers are really theirs or if they come from their costumes or like, we're not sure about any of this yet. Yeah. Maybe they're in humans. Who knows? Yes. Oh, that'd be a twist, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, but this is so much fun. I, the art, of course, Bernard Chang and Marcelo Maiolo have been working together oh, yeah. for a while on Batman Beyond. Like, they're always a solid team. Vita Ayala, one of my favorite writers working right now. Uh, I'm so glad this book is finally, finally out in the wild. Yeah, it's really, really good. Uh, meanwhile, on Krakoa, a maybe less happy book, oh. X-Factor number eight, in which everyone is haunted as fuck. Yeah, this was this was kind of terrifying. I, I I'm glad I am so mixed about this. I'm glad in some ways they did not drag this out and the other ways it was so good as a horror and terrifying comic that like in some ways I kind of did want it to last a little <laughs> longer. <laughs> this is written by Leah Williams with art by David Baldeon. Colors by Israel Silva, and letters letters by Joe Caramagna, and design by Tom Muller. Uh, yeah, I... This, this story's pacing has been interesting, because it has played, I think, so much with time, and uh -huh. I don't know that any issue of it has actually been as condensed as this one has. Right. Like, a lot happens in this issue. Yes. But I do think, like, as I think about it, each issue of this arc has all been more or less, well, with the exception of maybe Dokken in that last issue. The, part of the last issue was maybe a little more spread out over time. Uh, but it's all been pretty real time, yeah. or at least has read that way. Now, I will say, like, after this, I don't know if I trust that Dokken was actually trapped in the snow for days or if he just thinks he was yeah there, there's definitely some unknowns there yeah um and, and he may not know completely now either so, right yeah i do like the way williams is playing with this pacing because it does sort of does sort of keep me guessing in what could happen next yep uh and i think we're i think we're set up for like what I have to imagine is probably the last part of this this particular arc. If they continue, uh, there's the very, uh, they, they've put it in a place where there's a very real possibility this could kind of go on hold for a few issues and then come back. Well, that's true too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious to see where this book goes. I am continually surprised by it. I, I am too. I, I absolutely. Um, by the way, it had certainly of this week and possibly of quite a while has my absolute favorite uh, uh, text page in the in a mute book. Yeah, which one is that? 
It's the one where there's an email from Charles Xavier to uh, North Star. Yes. He says, inquiry about iBoy's abilities. Oh, we want to congratulate you for, uh, you know, uh, essentially uh, de-haunting your, the Boneyard and a uh, great da, da. and by the way we understand that uh, Trevor's mutations have uh, you know he's got some additional abilities now please keep a surprise of this young man's extraordinary sight development and then we get the reply from uh, Jean-Paul and he's like no which is also <laughs> my favorite Marcel Marceau quote <laughs> yeah. that was great I just love Northstar going no <laughs> yeah like one of those moments where you get the the clear positive side of north star being just kind of a jerk yes yeah but in this issue charles xavier is a jerk he and is. sometimes yeah. it takes a jerk to deal with a jerk it does yeah okay all right is it still good the Wrong Earth, Night and Day, number three. Dragonfly and Dragonfly Man meet number one Prime, and he makes them an offer they want to refuse and do. Ah. Luna, number two. Uh, psychedelic is the word I kept looking for last time I talked about oh. this book, by the yeah. way. Uh, I cannot tell you what's going on other than some blood drinking and maybe immortal monsters. And uh, that's probably it. But fuck if I don't love it. There you go. Last Witch, number three, Brian. Um, Sometimes you have to fight fire with fire. And sometimes you have to fight water with fire. Spectre Inspectors, number two. Um turns out sometimes better than fighting a ghost is just talking to it proctor valley road number one uh we're gonna spend a i'm gonna spend a, just a minute extra on this one uh this is the this is a new book by grant morrison uh and alex child uh and it it did not feel like a grant morrison book to me and i don't say that in a bad way just it's just not what i was kind of expecting fully yeah, I think um, the concept does. The execution is what feels different. That's th that, and that is a very fair assessment of this. Um, that being said, uh, Alex and I talked a little bit about this. There are definitely some. Uh, it is set in the I want to say the 1950s. Is that right? Hang on. I want to I make sure I get that right. Uh, uh, 1970. It is set in 1970. Um, and. There are some uh, racial slurs and some epithets and just some general comments that are um, – I took them to be like just kind of setting the tone of what time this took place in and the attitudes that some people have. Um, I can – Alex pointed out, and I agree. I, like I caught on it, definitely, but it, I can see where it would bother some people, so be aware of that. Um, that being said, the the two make, I, what I would consider kind of the main characters in this, which are um, uh, two uh, cousins, are just I, I love them. I think they're absolutely wonderful. Um, and then we get introduced to essentially kind of three others that are going to kind of round out I think our core group. And uh, yeah, they all. Uh, they're all trying to figure out how to raise money to go to buy tickets to a Janice Joplin concert. Uh, and what they end up coming up with is doing ghost tours to North 
Proctor Valley to Proctor Valley Road, where there's supposed to be uh, you know, urban legend type thing going on. Mile marker sixty six point six. Yeah. Uh and all I can say is uh definitely looks like something's going on. Yep. <laughs> yeah, there you go. This week we also had the third chapter of the next Batman Second Son. Uh Jace and Lucius finally confront each other. Uh and then Jace and Luke finally confront each other. And uh, none of it goes well for Jace or really anybody. Like I don't know why I don't know why that man came home. I would have stayed away. <laughs> Uh, Rorschach number six. This is a, a an epistolatory issue, uh, in which we see a series of letters written back and forth between Laura and the comic book artist from issue two. Homesick pilots number four, Brian. Uh, they say sometimes it's better to be lucky than good, which is all well unless your luck literally abandons you. I also want to want to say that this issue has one of the coolest and most memorable fight scenes in any comic I've ever read. You talking about the videotape fight scene? Yes. Yeah. 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 Just absolutely astonishing, Casper Wingard, you mad genius. The Amazing Spider-Man number sixty-one. Uh, this issue returns to Pete and Boomerang's attempt to stop. Wilson Fisk from collecting all of the pieces of the magic tablet thing that Wilson Fisk wants to collect all the pieces of. Oh, right, yeah. Fisk puts out a bounty on Boomerang, and uh, Peter realizes maybe the new team he's tangling with is, in fact, Boomerang's new team. The the Spider-Man boomerang roommate stuff will forever be my favorite part of this run. Daredevil number 28. Uh, This issue is titled Are You Okay? Uh, And it is about all the ways in which Daredevil, Elektra, Wilson Fisk, and uh, uh, Mary are not okay. Also, Daredevil gets many lectures about being a tourist in the prism system when he could do so much more good if he had just stayed out of it. Deadpool, Nerdy 30, one shot. Uh, This is exactly what it sounds like. It's a 40-something page anniversary special. Uh, There are eight different stories in here. I'm going to shout out my three favorite. Best There Is by Kelly Thompson, Kevin Lebronda, Bob Quinn, and Rochelle Rosenberg. This is... About Wolverine fighting some, I think they were AIM scientists, or Hydra agents, one of the two, crashing into Wade Wilson's prom when he is still a plucky teenager, pre-Deadpool, pre-cancer. Short story, Tall Tale, from Gail Simone, Michael Shelfer, and Jim Charlampadus, which is about Deadpool and basically a clone of his that grew back from his brain that one time his brain was severed. Teaming up to fight Stiltman, who goes commando, and Party for One by Jerry Duggan, Brian Posehn, Scott Koblish, and Nick Filardi, which is basically Deadpool stuck in a death trap under the ocean, locked in a coffin, surrounded by, I don't know, sharks or whatever, for 
months basically do it it's basically deadpool castaway his mask is wilson and he and his mask have conversations with each other eternals number three uh we go to lemuria and just get more great unreliable narration against meeting an unknowably large cast of characters i don't know how this book works let alone is as good as it is kieran gillen Kieran Gillen, Isad Ribic, Matthew Wilson, and Clayton Cowles. All of them. All yeah. of them in tandem. Immortal Hulk, number 44. Uh, the UFOs make pretty quick work of Hulk. I did not know, by the way, that uh, cosmic power is the, the weakness of gamma radiation. Well, there you go. Strange Academy number nine. It is Parents' Day at Strange Academy. And, uh, well, if you're gonna beat Loki, you gotta cheat. Taskmaster number four. Taskmaster has to fight off the Hatut Zaraze and Okoye in order to learn Okoye's physicality as the last sort of key to unlocking the mystery of whatever happened to Maria Hill. I, I, I every time every time you talk about Taskmaster, I just want to I just want to say, I f- I feel like I I feel like I've seen this book before. It's just doing something again. Uh huh. Uh huh. No joke. This book has been surprisingly good. Wolverine Black, White, and Blood number four. This is the final issue of the Wolverine Black, White, and Blood, uh, books. All of these were excellent. Shout out to the Kelly Thompson story. Uh, Kelly Thompson writing about loss and trauma for Wolverine and Mystique and uh, empathy in ways you don't normally get, I think, between those two characters. I can see it. Kelly Very Thompson's good. the one to do it. Yep. The autumnal number five. Cat uh, decides maybe she should just accept being happy in this in her hometown. And then everything goes as badly as you expect when you've moved back to your hometown and say, yeah, I could be happy here. Wasted Space, number 20. Billy, once again, realizes he's an idiot. Something tells me it will not be for the last time. Uh, But it is time to take the fight to God. There you go. And Uh, I realized that I I left one off of here. Yeah. Uh, uh, Also, Black Hammer Visions, number two. Um, this was, uh, the most House of Mystery uh, issue we've had so far, uh, featuring the Cabin of Horrors and kind of a story of somebody getting lost in it. Uh, so very good. And then specifically, I wanted to make sure that I mentioned it because I need to let you know that the next issue, uh, issue number three is, uh, Chip Zdarsky. Yes. Yeah, so. There you go. All right. Now we have an interview with Pat Shand to cut to. Uh, Jin and I recorded this with him a couple of days ago and had a great time. We're here with Pat Shand. If you've been listening to us for a while, you may remember his name from books we've talked about before, like Afterglow, Breathless, Snap Flash Hustle, Spooky Girls, and Gangster Asperista, uh, or possibly from others. He's got a... uh, New book, or at least new in print, from Black Mask, called <laughs> Destiny NY. Hi. Hey, how's it going? Good, I'm happy to be here. We're glad to have you. Yeah. 
So we always like to start off interviews with kind of an easy over the plate question. Uh, how did you get into nerdy stuff, comics, and all that jazz, just as a fan? Uh, um, uh, comics specifically, it was um, a, a kind of backwards route, because um, uh, growing up, I loved uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and um, I, I remember I was at Borders one day, and, and I was looking for Buffy novels, and I saw a comic with um, uh, James Marster's uh, chiseled face on the cover. <laughs> and I, uh, you know, I naturally purchased it. And I read in the comic that Joss Whedon was going to be continuing uh, Buffy through comics. And I remember um, at that point, I read that and I was like, why comics? Like, why not novels? And then um, when I bought it, because I was excited, I I quickly learned why comics. It was... um it was a medium that I hadn't really given a shot because I only, you know, I was only aware of the existence of superhero comics. I didn't really, you know, I, I grew up having read some creep show and things like that, but I, I didn't know what, you know, what modern comics could do. And then um, I began to explore uh, other shows that I loved through licensed comics that way. And that introduced me to writers like, um, uh, Brian Wood was writing for the Supernatural comics, so I read his other work. Brian K. Vaughn was writing on Buffy, so I read um, Runaways and Why the Last Man. And I began to kind of um, expand out with my reading, and I discovered how, you know, how interesting comics could be and how unique a language it was, and that that appealed to me as a writer. But that that was my way in, yeah, through through um, through TV, really. Cool. And when did you? When did you decide you wanted to start writing for comics? Oh, you know, um <laughs> what what I noticed about comics and it's um it's more true now of everyone, but back then like um uh it was much easier to to meet someone to to speak to someone verbally and just be an online friend with a comics writer that then it was to like say for example meet or talk to the writer of your, your favorite TV show. Like I, I was reading um Angel at IDW, and um through that I, ha- I had a correspondence with uh, Scott Tipton and Brian Lynch and Chris Ryle at IDW, and um I, I was kind of floored by how, you know, how easy it was to reach out to these creators, and um you know the um the ambitious writer in me saw it as an opportunity that I you know. I love this medium and I always wanted to, uh, you know, to write in any way that I could. I wanted to write novels, short stories, film, theater. I wrote for a while. And um, as soon as I started to read comics and see, see what they could do and see how unique they were and see how they were this sort of like, um, uh, you know, people like bring these, uh, these failed movie pitches to comics not realizing that comics it, it it's a perfect marriage of the imagery of film and uh the the pacing of prose it allows the creators um to 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 pace their stories in a purposeful way that gives the reader to option their option to pace it as well and it, it's just such a beautiful and unique format so just the accessibility of of creators and um my desire to write everything fed into um what would eventually be my journey to write mostly comics that's awesome thanks i like hearing that because it does seem like you see a whole lot more uh 
movie to comic book adaptations than you do like novel to comic book adaptations. And it does, yeah. it really does lend itself more to seeing, to, to deconstructing a scene visually as opposed to trying to deconstruct the way that the scene is written visually. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, too, um, uh, I was struck by, you know, cause I always wanted to experiment with my work, whether it be in theater or on the page, like for example, um, uh, I had this idea for a play where you would get a pamphlet that was a comic that ties into certain things that you would read during the intermission of the play. Um, and then I began to see, as I read more comics, I would see, um, like, for example, in Terry Moore's Strangers in Paradise, there's entire sections where he would break into prose. And that sort of, um, uh, that uh, freedom, I guess, is, that isn't the exact word, but just the ability to move in between uh, mediums while still in comics was was unique to me. Like, for example, like, say, if you're watching on TV, you're watching Orange is the New Black. Like a pamphlet for a novel isn't going to shoot shoot out the screen, and you read read a novel during dur- during the uh, credits. You know that that can't happen. <laughs> but in comics, you can you know you have an, an entire issue. It's just artwork, no no lettering. You can have an entire issue that is a novel. Like for example, too in um uh, Scott Snyder and Jeff Lemire did um uh, After Death. It's, yeah. It's, so much prose mm-hmm. that's very unique to comics and i think that um that uniqueness to to embrace the medium by incorporating other elements of other mediums it is very unique to comics yeah it lends itself to that kind of mixed media really well you see a lot of a lot of writers will post on twitter links to spotify soundtracks oh yeah, they, yeah. you know they've made playlists as they're writing or have designed soundtracks to listen to when you, you know, flip to page one and hit play. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. I remember um, what I loved about the early issues of uh, Lumberjanes was in Lumberjanes in the back of the issue, they, they'd have a playlist and um, that that's definitely more common now. I think that uh, who popularized that in many ways is, uh, is Kieran Gillen would go on his Tumblr and do a lot of that stuff. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I, I love it though. You know, that's, like you said, it's unique. It adds an element to it. And um, it shows, you know, it gives readers um, a kind of a extra element when really, you know, the limitation of comics is you have a, a small piece of the story once per month if you're doing traditional, you know, single-issue comics. That that, that can be hard to um, to stay in the reader's memory. Because, for example, uh, WandaVision. You, you you watch it once a week it's easy to just watch it over and over and it's it's a long enough piece of television that it stays in your head 22 pages really can breeze by so all these elements that help it be unique the playlist the, the breaking of the format really um it challenges the the writer to find a way to make that 22 pages last in the mind until the next issue comes out, which I mean, it's difficult. Yeah. It's, it's, you've mentioned writing for theater. We are both theater nerds. Hey, Uh, let's go. (laughs) Oh, but it's, it's dramaturgical, right? It's, it's Mm -hmm. getting into the audience's head and trying to find that way to like hook their memory, hook their thoughts so that, a month later, 
usually at least they'll go oh yeah this issue here's what happened last time i don't have to go dig it out of the box of comics in my closet because i am a human who will never actually do that yeah yeah Yeah. and uh to to a um a, a comparison that i feel between comics and theater is that um it's it's the speed the speed yeah. at which you get the from idea to audience theater it's instant you know theater you can workshop a play and hear the reaction in person um in film the barrier is the editing process in other publishing you know you have to write a novel go through multiple drafts in comics really in monthly comics it's it's pretty quick you know so it, it does um it reminds me of theater in that way where um I can, for example, I'll learn if, if something isn't working in a story much quicker in comics than I would if it was a novel. If it was a novel, it couldn't be changed. If it's a comic that's coming out monthly that I'm seeing the perception as I'm writing issues, just a couple of issues down. Like, for, like um, Destiny isn't that good of an example because I've written and published already like 30 issues, and this is just coming out as singles now. Um, but while I was writing Breathless, I was writing number three when number one came out, you know? So yeah. that could have been adjusted. And it reminds me of being in in um, the audience as my short plays went on. And I, I, I would, like, love a joke. And then people wouldn't laugh at that, but would laugh at a different joke that was, like, a throwaway to me. And that would just, you know, it, it, it was a sobering kind of thing that I think is, um, it's unique to theater but that comics is is similar in some ways. Yeah, it's it's I think more than I think more than say, you know, you 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 want to watch a movie, you go into a theater like there's a there's a I mean, I guess you do this with live theater too. You're going into a theater, but anyone who's worked in theater knows when it's time for a matinee crowd or if there's been like really heavy news that night like something something bad has happened i remember the night of the last georgia governor's election i had a performance and it was a comedy and that was the one dead house we had was this random tuesday night because everyone was focused on the election results and most of that audience was not happy with how they were going uh most of that cast and crew myself included was not happy with how they were going like we all felt it and there's no control for that there's no control in comics for what has your reader just done in the same way that when you walk into a movie theater everyone knows the drill you you watch the previews you sit through the commercials and the music before that the screen gets dark you get the like theaters please silence your cell phones thing and then it starts there's there's more control of that space i guess yeah and it's um it is something that i think about like um how something will play in what context it's in like like you mentioned the the election there was talks about like when for for example specifically destiny new york when that book comes out um we didn't want it to be uh in november we didn't want it to be in january because we didn't know certain things yeah um so that that i do think about what i try not to think about as much is um is specific um audience reactions like i try to get away from reading reviews because you know it's i I do think that there's something still to being um 
an artist who doesn't move, who is strong in your, in your take, in your ideology, in your idea of the story, who doesn't really take in anything about the, the reaction. But at the same time, I, I do also feel, I feel the need to get better and to workshop. So it is sort of like this back and forth within me about how much I want to take in and how much I want to change or, or, um, or, or even listen, because, you know, I do, um, I, I do like when a writer is distant. I like when a writer um, believes in their own vision. And because the truth is that so many times, um, say a story, an, an issue of a book has a negative reaction. Um, sometimes a writer has to go, wait for this issue, because that everything that you're mad about is going to be addressed. And it, this is a story. And I think that sometimes um, uh, I wish that I didn't hear that. I would rather the writer live in that discomfort with the audience and the audience find out on their own through the story that, that their concerns addressed. But yeah, that's why like I have a, I have trouble navigating social media because I, I, I don't know much. I don't know how much as a writer I want to listen. I don't know how much as a writer I want to be engaged with reaction to the story, especially when it is, um, you know, like it's a lot of discomfort with the audience, not knowing what happens and not knowing what the whole story is. Like for, for example, with breathless, um, there, there were certain reactions that I read that, you know, they were positive, but, they had a totally wrong idea of where the story was going. And my thought was that, wow, if I comment about this, which internally I want to, right, that would spoil the the direction of the story, not only for them, but for people who want that ride. So my thought is that I want to just like maybe disengage from the audience a bit to give that ride a bit better. Yeah. 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 No, I think that makes sense. And it's, it's, I imagine got to be wild. I mean, okay, live theater. I have never worked on a show where I've had people tweeting at me about, oh, hey, this take of Spring Awakening that you stage managed, right? Um, how dare how dare the production of Servant of Two Masters you worked on add back the Commedia dell'arte masks? Goldoni would be turning over and it's like, you don't, that's not Twitter, right? Yeah. Um, but managing the like gut reaction visceral response versus actual legitimate criticism yeah has to be just the wildest back and forth oh my gosh yeah it's it is and and i mean um you you both as people who who read absorb and analyze comics i think that's awesome and i do that too i have um I used to run a blog where I would do that on podcasts. I talk about that kind of stuff. So that is one thing. And I think that what separates um, that from what I feel is more like of a gut react an unanalyzed gut reaction is I can really tell in a review when someone has been given a ton of comics to review and, and has to hit article quotas, you know, like there's a lot of, um, the I see a lot of reviews in comics where uh 
you can tell that someone didn't really absorb the issue because that they're critiquing things that that either weren't in the issue or that are addressed specifically in the issue that you know um yeah yeah just things like that so that that thing that i see so much that that does make me want to disengage a bit but i do love legit criticism like i remember um one thing that i thought was awesome was um i was reading a sequential tart and they um (laughs) it was this critical review of i think van helsing back when i was writing that and uh the writer of the review criticized um how van helsing was um shooting her crossbow um left-handed and right-handed depending on the panel and how that they would write that off as her being ambidextrous if my character robin hood hadn't also been doing that in her book you know so i was just like damn wow they saw a thing that i would never see i would never notice it you know um so that i feel is super valuable to me because now now i look for that kind of thing but I, i would have never before so that kind of criticism where the critic digs deeper than the, than the creator, I, I think is great, you know? For sure. Let's yeah. talk about... I'm sorry, Jen, did you no, have you're something? No, you're good. You're good. Sure. Let's talk about Destiny. Um, I think both of us have read some of it. Uh, as, as we've mentioned, it's up on Comixology, but it's getting single-issue releases soon from Black Mask. Yes, yes, yes. What... What made you want to go ahead and put it out in single print issues after having it out for a little, being, I think you said 30 issues or so in, uh, after having had it out digitally for a while? Well, we are in print too from before we, um, I kickstarted it and it's been going for five years as individual graphic novels. And then after that, I serialized it digitally. So what I realized though, was that, um, there's a huge difference in these audiences. The Kickstarter market is one thing. The digital market is one thing. The single issue in the comic shop market, different thing. So that's why people scared about digital taking over. Brains are in the wrong place. Doesn't exist. (laughs) Doesn't exist at all. That's just, it's it's as different a market as, as Pokemon cards are from comics. Different thing. So what I realized was that um, uh, there, there was a limit to how much overlap there was between my Kickstarter market and that direct market because it's it's asking a lot to have retailers support a $20 trade paperback from an indie creator who doesn't have big two titles. Like, say, if... um. If James Tinian, who was to, who's doing Batman, if he did what I did, the retailers would eat it up because his name is on these big titles. No, no matter what he does, it's going to sell. It's proven that it would. So me, me expecting retailers to go on something unproven in such in such an unstable market, unstable market. It's it it, it isn't a way. It's not a path towards success for me or them. So in doing this, where it it takes what I've done and puts it out in single issues that are more digestible, more affordable on a month-to-month basis, and lets retailers try it. Because to buy 
um, an order of a, a volume number one, that's not really trying it. That's buying in, you know? So me giving re- re- these re- retailers the option to try it, it's much, it's much more in line with, um, with how other comics operate. And that's what I wanted. I wanted to give that audience who, who hasn't gotten the chance to read it in a way, um, g- give the book to them in a way that was, uh, a good bet for for me, of course, but also the retailers, because that's how you succeed in that market is to is to work with the retailers because they're they're not going to want that trade paperback. Maybe after issues one through five are out, but now no, I mean it wouldn't make sense. So uh, yeah, so I do it in search of that new audience, and also just because it keeps the title fresh. You know, I've yeah. I've published it for five years now. Um, it grows in backers every volume we do meet new readers that way but this i think is going to be a way to find people who would have never heard about it if it weren't on that shelf yeah definitely I think yeah i'm oh, sorry go ahead because i know that i've pushed people to get this book and it has been difficult for them to actually get it in their hands yes so i think that this is a really great way to do that and it also helps to bridge the gap like a lot of people I would say almost most independent creators write an arc. Now they write to an arc instead of writing to an issue. And it's a good way to bridge the gap between, you know, the old style of, of getting issue by issue versus buying an entire volume. Yeah. I mean, and thank you for pushing it. You know, it's, um, it's a book that I, you know, I love to write. I think that there's an audience waiting for it in that market. So I appreciate that you um, push it. Thank you. Hey, I'll keep pushing. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you very much. Yeah, I uh, I think too we're in a moment. You 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 mentioned the sort of fear of digital comics and fear of Kickstarter eating away from direct market. Yeah, but I feel like we're in this moment where not only more and more is it becoming a valuable tool to independent creators, publishing creator-owned work, but it feels like I mean, in the last year with the comics industry dealing with distribution shutdowns with all of the covid related stress on the industry and on individual yeah. shops like i think more and more creators and even publishers are turning to kickstarter are turning to crowdfunding in general to help make things affordable just to get them out there i think any any platform that helps make it easier to produce make it more affordable to produce there's power in that yeah, and I think that um, what I don't like to see, though, is that many of my Kickstarter peers are are scared of that. They're scared of what they see as, as you know, the, the big kid coming in to their party. It's like, um, it, it, it feels like there's a bunch of middle school kids who, like, are picking, like, their, their, their crushes at, at, at this party. I want to ask out Rebecca. And then all of a sudden, the cool high school kid comes in, you know? He has, like, le- leather swim shorts or something, you know? He's like, oh. You know, <laughs> it's, they, they fear that, you know? They fear that Rebecca's into him now. But Kickstarter doesn't work that way. I feel like um, there's not that much personal accountability. I see all these posts about how, how oh, my, my Kickstarter isn't going as well as I wanted because of Keanu Reeves. Like, <laughs> like, like, dude, like, oh my god, your, your Kickstarter wasn't going to do well anyway, you know? Oh. Like, 
it's not Keanu's fault. Plus, um, I'm sure if Keanu saw that, he would totally promote your Kickstarter because he he's that nice of a guy. <laughs> yeah, he seems like a, a great guy, and I think that him, um, him and Boom bringing their book to Kickstarter, I think brings new eyes to the platform. Um, and I think that there's we we as creators we're so cocky to think, oh, my book doesn't work because of outside sources. When I think that the best what what I've learned through Kickstarter is that all of my failures, if I can own my success, I have to own my failures, right? Every book that I've done that has underperformed, that has to be my fault. It's it's I overestimated how much I thought people would love it. I I um I overestimated for for example, I've kickstarted three kids books on Kickstarter. You know who's not going through Kickstarter? Kids. <laughs> Children. Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't exist. So I've um I've adjusted how because I still want to do books for all ages, but I've adjusted how I'll kickstart that kind of book. I think that um that unwillingness to learn and to budge and to take your L's, that is a big problem on Kickstarter that's causing creators problems. Yeah. And I think that um uh these brands coming in, you know, of course there is this loyal uh lo- loyalty to, to to the indie struggle. Kickstarter is for the indie struggle, and that's great. But I think that this can be a shared space for anyone, that anyone who wants to use it is right to use it. Like there's this fear, oh, Marvel's going to be kickstarting the next Scarlet Witch comic. All right. All right. Yeah. Cool. I'm down. Go ahead. Sign me up. <laughs> yeah. I would buy it anyway. Yeah. This way, also, maybe people get paid a little faster. Yeah. And that has the potential to get more eyes on your book. There you go. Yep. I agree. Rising tide lifts all ships. Yep. That's what I think. Because, I mean, I've, I've experienced it. My, my best Kickstarters were for. My Kickstarter in October last year, it's a uh, Vampire Emmy and the Garbage Girl. It was um, a book that I had done through a small publisher, Margins Publishing, great publisher, uh, four years ago. And that was, it, it was very boutique. It, 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 it was never meant to continue, never meant to be put into comic shops. So when I brought it back with one more issue and did a trade, it was supposed to be like, a thank you to the readers who had supported issue one, but then it, it was as successful as the campaigns where it was entirely new, put everything into it. This in this new market was super successful. Then in December I I did thirsty and that was my biggest one ever. And it was one that I was scared of. It was this uh, not safe for work book that I co-wrote with my wife and it was, you know, it was a risk and both vampire Emmy and thirsty were, were books that I went into thinking, Oh, these could underperform, but I love the ideas and want them to happen anyway. Um, and they ended up being huge for me. And that's because to me of that market and me taking advantage of that market rather than blaming it. Cause I think that it's awesome. It, it, it is. It, it's what you said that the um, uh, rising tide, how'd you say it a rising tide lifts all ships lifts all ships boom there it is i i I think it's true um yeah no i I feel comfortable with keanu parting with us for sure (laughs) (laughs) the more the merrier yeah 
so for folks who aren't familiar with it, uh, what's the pitch for Destiny? All right, uh, pitch for Destiny. It is about a girl named Logan McBride. She had a prophecy made about her when she was young. She completes her destiny when she's 13. And now she's in her 30s trying to find out how to bring meaning to her life in a role that tells her that she's already done the greatest thing that she'll ever do. It's, um, it's sort of like um, uh, Magical Child Stars. Awesome. Um, yeah, reading through it, I, I, I don't know if you guys both had this same fear. I definitely had that fear in high school of the, okay, this definitely can't be where, I, where I'm at my best, right? Like, <laughs> that's a, I don't know. There are maybe not any, anything, there's very little more terrifying to me than the idea that I was at my best in my teens. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. Like there is such a real anxiety behind this book and I love it. Is that weird to say? Like, I love that it's driven by this very real fear. Yeah, no, that's, um, that's what I wanted to tap into. And um, I mean, the, the truth is that the core of the book, I mean, the core of the book is fear of death. It, it's the constant thought that, you know, every step I take is one step closer to, you know, whatever it is that's next. And no one knows what's next, if anything is next. And that, that, that terror, you know, it's, um, we, we code it in this, you know, this child star metaphor, this, you know, what happens when the fantasy story ends story. But, but, but the truth is all of it, everything happening in the book comes down to how different people live with and experience fear of death. How much uh, did your love of shows like Buffy tie into the creation of this book you know you know what's funny is um this book as far as buffy a bit less than others because uh i when i wrote robin hood you know that that was very buffy um this i wanted to lean a bit more a bit more six feet under you know um, oh yeah and i you know because I, I wanted it to be um to to be a series two that um, kind of also matches the structure of Orange is the New Black in that um, Orange is the New Black starts with a central character who you meet and who you experience the world through. But as, as each issue goes, the cast expands until, until every supporting character is a main character. And that was my, my sort of philosophy going in is that I want to introduce a world where we see from every character's point of view and live in this world for a long time. This world where, um, I mean, for example, uh, Joe Rollins, he's this character who, um, he starts as very much a, a Harry Potter character. You know, <laughs> he is a Harry Potter parody. He, he is, Joe Rollins is in the book to exist as the symbol of who the book doesn't follow, right? Yeah. So then. I wanted to get to the point where the book and following him for a little bit, just because every character has to matter. Every character, um, uh, a, a, uh, way that I go, for example, is, um, in chapter four, it's going to be issue three of the single issues. Um, there's a scene, uh, where for every scene that he's been in the character, Augustine, who works with Logan at the green bean, he talks about, um, this like sexless marriage that he's in 
for a few chapters and, and, and you get the sense that he has this like horrible neglecting husband. And then instead of just like having that as an ongoing bid, I was like, all right, so now in chapter four, we're going to follow him home and have that be how we start to roll his family into it. And you meet his husband and it, it isn't at all what you thought it was going to be, you know? And that I wanted to keep doing where, um, where the character Wally, who we have as the bagel man in volume one, volume two, he has a bigger role, volume three, bigger. And, and, and that way, just on and on and on until we have this cast of characters who, you know, you have Logan and Lilith as the central characters, but that everyone feels real. And and that that's what I loved about Orange is the New Black in that um, by the final season, the character Tasty is every bit as major of a character that uh, as Piper, you know, and um, that I also loved in Terry Moore's work. There's um, there's a scene in Rachel Rising uh, where uh, Rachel is investigating um, possibly who, who 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 killed her, who who took a noose and hung her, and she goes to the store and is trying to find the specific rope. And she has an interaction with a sales clerk that could have been, you know, the um the plot utility version of that is she, she goes to the store, finds the rope, moves on from that clue. In the book, it was this beautiful character moment that gives the clerk, who we'll never see again after that scene, this poignant character, this mining of, mining of character. And that is that's more the inspiration that I went with this in that I want to um, use Logan as like, she, she's a boat that moves through, through the world and we follow every ripple that ripples out from her. I think it's a really effective way to build a world. And it's something that maybe you can say it's more true of relationship comics than say superhero comics or comics borrowing from other genres but building out the world by building out different characters perspectives uh you you mentioned the the scene where uh oh shoot i just blanked on his name andre yeah uh, yeah andre is the husband andre is the husband husband. yeah yeah thanks we you mentioned the scene where we meet andre and exactly like you described i went in with a very specific set of expectations and they're just living lives that don't let them meet each other in the middle, essentially. Yeah, like it's, exactly. it's, yeah. there's no villain here. It's just ships passing and the world gets a little bigger and the world gets a little more complex. And there's no villain in this moment. There's no, there's no neglect in this moment, but the world is, is richer for something I think simpler. Yeah. No, a hundred percent. And I do want to say, cause um, I just realized that I never, said this about that scene um one thing that i went into this book with is that you know i worked um for a company called zenoscope for years and uh there was this impression of me as as like this guy who writes cheesecake characters right which you know that 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 wasn't how i felt i i wrote for a company i loved the stories that i wrote for them and i felt that not only the stories, but I felt mischaracterized. So my goal is Destiny in New York is, is a book that I feel like has an HBO tone. And I feel that in my indie work, people were expecting like 
something different than what I wanted to give. And while there is eventually nudity in Destiny New York, what I wanted to do was to only show male nudity in volume one. So in that scene is the only scene where there's anyone nude and you see Augustine's little cheeks, you know? Yeah. And that, you know, that I thought was fun, <laughs> you know, just to subvert in that way. Cause I don't like to be, I hate to be misinterpreted. And I feel like much of my career, um, people look at a book of mine, don't read it and assume. So I, I want this book to be one that people will, you know, people are more likely to give this one a chance than some of my older work and hopefully will be, you know, uh, taken aback by those being the cheeks that they see. <laughs> I think if anybody looks at your body of work as a whole and just assumes that they know what kind of a writer you are, A, they're stupid. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. But B, you write such a, a, I don't know, such a scope of work from, from all ages to this new Thirsty book that I'm very excited about. Thank um, you so much. <laughs> that it, it is hard, like you definitely have a style, but it's hard to get a read on like what your type is. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. very good. I love that. Thank it's you, real yeah. life. I try not to have like a type of story, you know, like... um. I was on a podcast recently talking about, um, you know, they wrote up a book that I'm not asked about frequently, and that's Crossed at Avatar. I wrote an arc. Um, it was um, the sequel series to Alan Moore's Cross Plus 100. Um, and I uh, went through his notes, and I had to write, like, a bridge story between uh, the Garth Ennis world of Cross to Alan Moore's, which is like a hundred years later, you know, oh, and um, that's a super like hyper violent series, and um, I liked my take on it. But what I said in this podcast was at the same time I was writing that I was writing Casper and Underdog, you know, <laughs> like I like to have that the hyper diversity in style in project. Like I don't want to be nailed down like. I hate this idea of like um uh brand. Like I don't want to have a brand. I want to be an artist, you know? Yeah. Definitely. I feel like that's a very hard walk to do right now, especially with us having to condense our whole lives into like a media post. Yeah, no, a, a hundred thousand percent. Yeah. I feel like um that's one thing that I think that has definitely hurt me as far as getting gigs is like there's no like there's no one who will have a concept and go, oh, th this is going to be a Pat Chan style book. Let's, let's reach out to Pat Chan. Like that, through my actions, doesn't exist. A Pat Chan kind of book, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that has led to me probably not being hired on many things because I'm not like, I try to not be easily boxed in, but I think that's sometimes like, if I were, for example, like, um, like a like, cool kind of like goth writer you know that that you know i might get work at like um i mean they, they don't exist anymore but black crown you know yeah. um but yeah I, I like to do different things i like that like for example right now this is crazy oh i shouldn't even say this um i'll use a, a different book um i'm working on this disney villains book at the same time as i'm writing thirsty you know i mean <laughs> don't tell disney right but, but like that's what i want to do you know? yeah uh i'm i'm reminded of another another 
comics writer who I've spoken to recently who had to start using pin names for basically that same reason just to <laughs> just to make sure no kids found his his Man. more adult content oh for sure oh yeah that's i mean um that's true of even Zenoscope. like i remember there there were certain writers who i'd reach out to and they'll go oh i'll write for Zenoscope under a pen name and <laughs> on one level i would just think oh dude like you know it, it's like just the variant covers like the insides it's like a superhero universe you know yeah um <laughs> but at the same time like there's a level of discomfort and you just have to say, yes, you know, go, go for the pen name. I, I've done pen names for other things, you know? Um, but yeah, yeah. I, I get the idea of protecting your, your name for sure. Yeah. But I also think there's something very cool about being able to have something that is, that you can start with when you're young and then when you're older, you can go, oh, man, I didn't know they did this. Oh, I didn't know they did this either. Now there's something for every stage of my life. Oh, yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. Had something and it just evaporated. Oh, no. It just I watched it. I watched brain. it just go away. Yeah. You saw the thought yeah. just come out from my <laughs> ear. And yeah. Uh, ask a question, Jen, while I <laughs> while I find mine again. Well, we are actually coming up on our hour mark. Uh, do you want to tell us more about Thirsty? Yeah, for sure. Um, awesome. Uh, Thirsty is an erotic graphic novel. It's uh, it's co-written by myself and my wife Amy. She, she and I do Prison Witch together. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is, it takes four different stories and it kind of weaves them together, a la Crash, you know, but like not at all like crash <laughs> um yeah the these stories overlap in, in interesting ways but it's it, it all comes down to um stories about people's different relationships with sex and some of the stories are funny i mean they're all funny uh but they also you know they, they have different tones like for example the um the thread story is a very light story about um this sort of like uber driver who ends up performing sort of like as a sexual therapist to her passengers in a very high tech car that can uh, read her passengers emotions. Um, There's uh, one story um, that is a uh, tragic comedy about a, a guy who has uh, trouble, trouble performing. There is a um, sort of like, a uh, wistful story about a woman who goes to uh essentially a a futuristic um sex shop that is it sort of uses the model of like a build a bear or american girl store where you can go and you can create your own doll but it, it but it's a sex doll you know um and the stories follow that kind of thing where it's um it takes a a seed that is familiar about sex, like um, with the guy, the thought of of not being able to please someone with um, with the store um, that follows. You know, she had a dream about someone. It, it's about infatuation. The the car is about everything, and uh, then the, the, then there's a story about someone who has an OnlyFans and is looking for the perfect partner. And it's like it follows these stories that all people experience sex in very different ways 
and um, but have some similar share, shared anxieties. So it's about that shared anxiety, shared excitement, and um, you know the overlap and not overlap of love and sex. Awesome. I feel and like we're a very out... so... oh sorry. No, no, it's, no, it's okay. It's coming. Uh, should be out by October this year. Cool. Very cool. I feel like we're a very sex positive show. We we like to really push sex positive books and that is a personal goal for me because we live in the south yeah um and it's it's still not somehow a very sex positive place so i feel like the education on sex positivity is such an important thing down here yeah so it's really exciting to have even more things that I can shove at people. <laughs> and say, no, yeah. no, sex isn't evil. Here, take this. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> there is this um, there's a stigma to it, and it even comes from people who you wouldn't expect. Oh yeah. Um, some of like the most progressive writers that are just like outwardly using how progressive they are as a marketing tool will tweet something like, "Oh, I'm so glad I never re- resorted to writing porn," and it's like one but why the subtweets you know yeah. <laughs> uh fucking say my name you know uh, not to be confused with the dom tweets <laughs> wow wow that's good i, I like that <laughs> um thank you jesus um that the uh, uh, slick uh yeah no um yeah, that stuff like um f- friends of mine just like talked about thirsty in a different way than destiny new york even though you know if you if you take out all the sex pages of destiny new york you'll have about a thirsty size book okay but because it's not marketed that way they see it as something different and um it does come down to what you said before um and i i don't mean to like put too sharp of a pin on it but it's 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 stupidity yeah (laughs) is what it is you know yeah well there's there's simultaneously there's nothing that is as big a part of maybe not everyone's life but many people's most people's lives that is talked about so little and as a result there's just so little language that's openly used that it remains uncomfortable it's it's a self-perpetuating cycle and until enough things break that and say yes we're going to have a frank open discussion and it will be here for you to join whenever you're ready nothing changes yeah a hundred percent like people um i think that there's this fear to use it as a marketing tool sex because they, they think that you know if you're pitching a book about sex then you're like using sex for marketing and that it's like kind of like weird and there's there's a fear about joking about it there's a fear about humor comedy about sex there's a there's so much fear about it there's a fear of being perceived as someone like who writes like you know thirsty was called by someone (coughs) a a titty book you know that's the last thing that i would call thirsty you know but but it but it was said and that is um I think it comes down to fear. People, people fear to be perceived in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I feared. I was actually on the phone today um, with Ralph Tedesco, who is one of the co-owners of Zenoscope, one of the founders. And um, 
we were talking about, um, you know, the direction of the company, just like my thoughts on something. And um, I told him that a lot of my, back in the day, I would kind of harp on them to, to change certain things about the covers. And the truth is now, now I wouldn't do that. Because my, the truth was that I wanted them to change for me. I wanted them to change so I would have to stop um, telling people to give the books a second chance based on the the story. I wanted the story to be seen as a story. But now I see that what Zenoscope does, you know, they, they've cornered a market. They get their stories out there. And that in and of itself is admirable. And I told Ralph today, I was like, I think that the fact that there are people who don't know that you guys have mostly normal covers and that you use the uh, cheesecake or, or whatever covers as variants, as C covers, as, as exclusive covers. If, if someone doesn't know that you have regular covers as the base, that person has written you off for a long time and it isn't worth chasing as a customer, you know? And I think that that writing off of companies like Zenoscope who are so successful, that writing off of them comes from fear of being perceived a certain way. The, the, these creators are, are resistant to, to accept Zenoscope as a valid publisher, as Vault. Zenoscope, I would bet so much money Zenoscope outperforms Vault. Zenoscope outperforms these amazing companies, but isn't seen the same way, isn't seen as like quote unquote cool in the comics industry because of those covers. And really it comes down to because of sex. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't to put any uh, pressure on Vault. I love Vault, but Vault is seen as this like cool edgy publisher that when they do a sex book, it's just the one thing. So it's seen as a certain way. Zenoscope has all their covers and people perceive them as not equals to a company like Vault, when they very much are equals to me. Do you see, and I, on the one hand, it feels like like we see more examples of, of books that are sex positive. On the other hand, you look at the entire output of the comics industry in a month and it still feels like a drop in a barrel. Yeah. But do you see the the advent of books like Sex Criminals, books like Money Shot, the success of Thirsty on Kickstarter. Do you see people getting more comfortable, even if by degrees? Do you see the industry getting more comfortable, even if by degrees? Or is it still still slow to change? I think that there is, it's a slow progress. To me, it's two different things in some ways. I think um, um, books like Sunstone, books like um, what Merca and Delfo was doing, books like money shot sex criminals those those find an audience that has no books but the audience has always been there that audience has been waiting like the audience that i found on thirsty is very different from destiny new york there's some overlap but but for example um uh what i've learned and this is what i see sort of like as a marketing failure for me as far as like how i how i pitched the book, how I marketed it, how I, you know, chose certain things for the covers, um, for, for, for the tagline. Our audience for Prison Witch 
is our audience for Destiny New York. So when I put Prison Witch up there, there is um, the way that I marketed it so similar. There, it's essentially finding the same people rather than bringing different people in. And that because that, that's the book I wanted to do. You know, I love Destiny New York. It's a similar tone, and I wanted to do that. But I could have found a different way to market it. Thirsty brought in an entirely different audience because Destiny New York wasn't marketed to what they were looking for. It could have been. I could have changed things and, and marketed either Prison Witch or Destiny to find them more successfully, but I didn't know how to. But Thirsty found them because Thirsty was a story that, that they, they didn't have. Like, they wanted more Sunstone, more um, more uh, what, what Merka is doing. I, I think her book is Mercy. More yeah. money shot, you know? Um, and because, listen, I love sex criminals. But also that book being so, like, so comedy forward, it almost gave people who were scared of sex books sort of like a way in because it was it, it it wasn't like a very like sexy book you know yeah. it, it was about sex but it wasn't like it, it wasn't like sunstone is you know like sunstone really is the golden standard in that it's it touches so much of what people want like um uh it's number one it's a romance people love romance mm-hmm. uh the fact that there aren't more just flat out romance comics is crazy it's wild it's crazy like i don't know if this is still true today but sunstone at least a couple of years ago was image's best-selling trade worldwide i I wouldn't be surprised um i i know for a fact it is um top cows best of all time best selling of all time um so that's true for sure and um and yeah, people love people love romance, and um, I mean, if you just look, I worked at a bookstore, and what sold was you know it was pretty much like the the Zenoscope cover for middle aged people, like a, a ripped <laughs> dude in like a cowboy hat, and like a woman in this southern style dress, you know, and um, and yeah, that that sold to an audience who wanted that so badly. And I think it is every industry's problem if they neglect that, that consumer. Because that consumer, they, they want good stories. And, and there's good stories to be found in every genre. In, in romance, in erotica, you just have to do it right. And what, um, what Sejic and what the uh, Money Shot team does is they approach a character first. And, and that's great. Yeah, absolutely. Like, as long as you're respectful of of these characters and of, you know, as a result, like they're real log analogs. Every every character in a book, you know, if if you turn a character into a joke, you're turning someone reading it who has something in common with them potentially into a joke, and that's right. alienating. Hundred percent. And, and, but if you if you respect them, like that's that's affirming. Yes, yes, and I think that that's true of all genres. It has to be just because people are so scared of sex stories that it's almost as if they're surprised when it's character driven, you know. Yeah. Uh, but like that's how it sh- like that, that's how every story should be. Um, using Vault, I don't know why I, I keep going to Vault, but um, their book, uh, the Autumnal, is this horror story. But issue one and most of issue two, all character, and it's great. That's oh me, yeah. 
the best mm-hmm. book on shelves right now. I love that book. It's and, incredible. Uh, yeah, it's so, so, so good. And that is horror that is character first. And no one is like, oh, there's so much character development. <laughs> <laughs> but but with Sunstone, it's like, oh, Sunstone has real characters. <laughs> like, hey, yeah, no shit, you know? Why wouldn't it? It is really interesting that in, like, other types of books, we're like, oh, no, they made them into real people before they... Killed them, or they made them into real people before they did other things with them. Instead of like with with sex positive books and erotica and stuff like that, we don't go. Oh no, they made them into real people before they had sex. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Imagine yeah. that. Real people know. have sex. I don't know why the phrase "a high stakes sex comedy" just popped into my brain. <laughs> but see, that that was my first response. Like those words have never been put together. But. <laughs> High stakes would apply to anything else because you take time and it's it's normalized that you take time and develop character and character yeah. gives you stakes. Yeah. Yeah, people are just scared of it. That's yeah. it. Yeah. Uh well, this has been a blast. Thank you yes. so much for sitting down and talking with us. Happy to, happy to. Uh is there anything else you'd like to mention, talk about, promote, point people toward before we wrap up? Um, I will say uh Destiny New York, number one. From Black Mask is going to be on shelves. Uh, that the current date, to my knowledge, is March 31st this year. It's actually happening. Uh, so you know, be at comic shops, be ready for it. It's going to be an ongoing series. Um, I have written and published four volumes in their entirety. That is, um, you know, so pe- people are worried about you know uh, investing in a creator-owned title because of the idea that oh this book is going to be canceled. It's going to go away or the, the team is going to get hired on this, this and that. Nah, we, we have years of stories done. So it's, it's feel free to invest. I'm here for you. The, the book is done ready for you. Awesome. Uh, Jen, you got anything else? Uh, no, I think that about does it for me. Cool. Well, Thanks again. Uh, everyone should definitely check out Destiny New York and Pat's other other work. Uh, it's all out there in comic shops and on Comixology. And if um, I have to tell anybody on this show to read Afterglow one more time, I, I will a, come at you. <laughs> I was about to say, we didn't talk about Snap Flash Hustle, but that's the one I'm going to yell at people about. <laughs> yes. Thank you both. Thanks yeah. so much. All right. Thank you again, and we will talk to you later. And now we're back. Thanks again to Pat Shand for taking the time to sit down with us. Uh, If you want to make sure you pick up Destiny New York, it is out on March 31st. I'm almost positive we're past FOC, but I'm sure if you reach out to your your comic shop, uh, it's they probably either have ordered it or can still add to their orders at this point and cross their fingers. Um. But definitely check it out. Uh, I've read the first trade worth of it because it was digital first. And it's such a fun book, such a a well-written book uh, with great art. And Pat Shand is someone whose stuff we have consistently enjoyed on the show. Yeah. Time for this week's books. We have our next round of Infinite Frontier. Maybe the round I'm the most excited for. We get Catwoman number nine from Rom V, Fernando Blanco, Jordi Belair, and Tom Napolitano. Justice League number 59 with a main feature by Brian Michael Bendis, David Marquez, Tamra Bonvillain, and Josh Reed. And a Justice League dark story by Rom V, Hermanico, Romulo Fayardo Jr., and Rob Lee. 
And then Nightwing, a.k.a. the book that's going to make Brian and me get invested in Dick and Barbara as a couple. <laughs> written by Tom Taylor, with art by Bruno Redondo, colors by Adriano Lucas, and letters by Wes Abbott. Uh, Brian, tell me about Bequest number one. Uh, yeah, so this is a new Aftershock book by uh, Tim Seeley and Freddie Williams. Uh, Freddie Williams is doing art. And then uh, we have colors is Jeremy Colwell, letters is Marshall Dillon. Uh, this is the book, I think we talked about it in solicitations a little while ago, Yep. Uh, where there is, it's presented, there's a high fantasy world of Tangia, and where wizards and warriors battle, and it's great, and it's very much the, uh, you know, standard kind of high fantasy thing. And then, um, yeah, by the way, welcome to Chicago, where these magical items and stuff are showing up, and they're trying to figure out what the hell's going on. I am also very excited for this. The only reason I didn't put it on mine is because I knew it would be on Brian's. There you go. Uh, I did, however, snipe from Brian. Orphan and the Five Beasts, number yeah. 104. This is written, drawn, colored, and lettered by James Stokoway. Uh I don't know. This could be him writing, drawing, coloring, and lettering the phone book for all I care. And if it's James Stokoway, you know the art's going to be good. Uh, and crazy detailed. Uh, then also, Black Knight, Curse of the Ebony Blade, number one of five, which is, I think, probably something that could easily fly under folks' radar. Uh, if it had not been for that King and Black tie-in about Black Knight, it would probably fly under mine. This is written by Cy Spurrier, with pencils by Sergio Davila, inks by Sean Parsons, colors by Arif Prianto, and letters by Corey Pettit. I strongly recommend picking up that King in Black issue, uh, because I think it's going to lead straight into this. This sets up the idea, or that sets up the idea that the Black Knight and the Ebony Blade are not what the myth have always said, that in fact he's the least qualified person to have the blade, and the blade kind of preys on his uh, uh, failings as a person and has on all of its hosts and i think this series is going to build on that and explore what that means for him uh but that first issue was like a surprise to me and really good it was one of my favorite issues that came out in the week it came out excellent that is it for me do you have anything else brian nothing else in that case, thanks to Chase Parker for our intro voiceover, and once more to Pat Shan for sitting down with us this week. Panelology is a member of the Certain POV Network. If you're looking for other cool podcasts about popular culture, go to CertainPOV.com. I am going to mention this week's Circle of Friendship, which is hosted by my friend Frankie and her co-host Anna, who I've also recorded episodes of stuff with and who is also a delight. They are both delights. Uh, talking about the Circle of Magic book series. So check that out. You can visit us at panelologypodcast.com. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash panelology. Get merch at bit.ly slash panelologymerch, capital P, capital M. Or send us questions, comments, or whatever at bit.ly slash panelology mailbag, capital P, capital M. I'm Alex. And I am Brian. Curry Comics. No. 
CPOV. CertainPOV.com. Can you believe we've been friends for seven years? And it all started because I compared you to Alana the Lioness. Tamara Pierce really set the tone of our friendship. A love of magic. Briar Moss. Fantasy. Briar Moss. Powerful women. And of course, Briar Moss. I'm Anna. And I'm MJ. And we invite you to join our circle of friendship. Where we do a chapter-by-chapter deep dive into the Circle of Magic series by Tamara Pierce. We answer important questions like, how does Moonstream let certain dedicates take care of children? Can you imagine anyone else but Mandy Patinkin playing Nico? Knives, Briar. And Knives! Join us every other Monday at cofpodcast.libsyn.com or wherever you download podcasts. But seriously, Knives... 